Welcome to the Hudson Wesleyan Church Podcast, a recording of the weekly messages of Pastor Wesley Rowan during the Sunday worship service. We trust the time you spend listening will enhance your relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, here is Pastor Wes. I want you to remember the story that um, Judy read for us. I'm going to move down here a little bit, if that's okay with you. Sometimes I do that, not always, but I'm going to do it today. Um, Judy had read for us from the book of 2 Kings, and this is the uh, story of Naaman. I'm not going to recount the entire thing, but you can uh, remember it. She just read it. I want you to keep that in mind as we actually look at Luke chapter 4, verse 14 through 30. If you would like to follow there in your Bibles, you can turn there. There's Bibles in your pew if you would rather use those, or if you look at your insert there in your bulletin, there's a QR code you can scan that will pull it up right on your phone. It'll even turn it directly to the verse that we're starting at this morning if you uh, really would like to just be pinpoint accurate there. Jesus is uh, has come back from Galilee, and I'm not gonna read all of this, but it's from verses 14 through 30. Jesus has come back from Galilee, um, uh, or to Galilee, I mean. Of course, that's where uh, his home really was. And he goes to the synagogue uh, on the Sabbath, and he really is sort of um, attracting attention. People are kind of impressed by Jesus. You know, he's, he's done some things, and he's starting to get a bit of a following. And just like any time that somebody um, from a community is, is gaining a following or, or people are paying attention to them or they're getting maybe a big uh, social media <laughs> following or they've written something that people find really impressive, people started paying attention and taking note. Um, I remember uh, last, uh, what was it, last uh, graduation, I think, for Hudson High School and we had a speaker who came back to speak who was a, an alum of the high school and he uh, was working for, oh dear, I don't remember, was it the Eagles maybe? I don't remember, for an NFL team and he had gone really high up kind of in the media world and, and in, the, in the business world and, and it was kind of neat to, to think about someone from our community moving into those circles and traveling in that way and so that happens a lot. That's a natural human thing to happen. And so Jesus gets to the synagogue and everyone's applauding him and thinking about how great he is and, and how well he has spoken. And he just seems like a really, you know, local boy does well. That's kind of where Jesus is at this point in his life. And um, he goes to Nazareth and he goes into the synagogue and he stands up to read the scriptures to them. And the, and the scriptures are brought to him and he reads... The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, and he sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord from the Old Testament prophet. So he closes the book and he sits back down and he says to all the people that are there, today is this prophecy fulfilled right in your sight or right in front of you or right in your hearing. In other words, right where we are gathered. And once again, everyone is speaking well of Jesus. Wow, that, hey, now, now that was a scripture reading. That's what they're saying, you know? I mean, just he's articulate, he's, he's, he's well-spoken, he just, he seems like he really knows the scripture, like maybe he was there when it was written, you know? He just, he really is well, well put together, this Jesus. And, and they're really applauding him. 
And they were so, they were so gracious with their words and about how the, the scriptures tell us in verse 22, they were wondering how graciously the words fell from his lips, okay? They were just, you know, this is the guy we want to make sure we get him in our next theater production. I mean, he's just, he's really good up in front of people. That's what they're saying. And I said, isn't this Joseph's son? And he goes on to speak to them, and then he says this to them, hey, no prophet is really welcome in his own hometown. I hear all the things you're saying about me, but there's going to come a day where you're probably not going to want to claim me. And then he says this, I say to you this truth. There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months. We didn't read that story this morning, but it's there in the book of Kings. When a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of the other widows, only to the one at Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Zarephath in the land of Sidon was kind of the... um, idolatry capital of of Israel at that time. It's where um, Jezebel was from that area. If you know anything about Queen Jezebel from the Old Testament, right? That's not the person that you really want to take after, okay? So so, um, Jezebel was from that area, and it was the place where a lot of the idol worship came. And in fact, it was the place where they created a lot of the idols that that were being sold and being worshipped in Israel in the Old Testament days, okay? And, And so Jesus points out, that it was the widow and the, and the idol worship capital of Israel that somehow was the one that Elijah was sent to. And then he says this, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha. Now we're starting to hear from our story this morning. But none of them were cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage. Okay? So think about this with me. Jesus comes home. He stands up to read the, 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 the prophet at the synagogue on the Sabbath. And everybody is going, wow, he's impressive. And he goes, well, just hold your horses. You're not always going to think that about me. And then he tells them these two little accounts from the Old Testament. And it's really interesting to notice when Jesus quotes things from the Old Testament, he quotes from all over the Old Testament during his ministry, but of the accounts that he tells and the people that he mentions, he picks, at least in this case, these two individuals who both would not have been well thought of by these Jewish purists that he's in front of on that day. He says, the woman from the idolatry capital of Israel, and the Syrian, the pagan, Naaman, were the ones that God took notice of. And just by him telling them that, it says that they grew enraged at him. They're, now all of a sudden, they're angry. They're upset. They were, just, they were thrilled with him just not that long ago. Now, they're, now they can't stand him. What is it about those stories? What is it about that Old Testament story of Naaman in particular 
that causes a problem? And how did it actually reflect forward on Jesus so much? We're talking about seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. How does that story reflect on Jesus so much that he actually ends up recounting it a thousand years later? What happened? So we heard the story of Naaman. The, the Syrians invaded Israel, okay? The Syrians invaded Israel. And in the time of the kings, what, what happened was that some of the kings had begun to try to make deals and, and sort of um, work with and, and have treaties with some of these pagan kings, okay? So the Israelites and the Syrians actually sort of ended up having a relationship a little bit. God was not pleased with that. He did not want his people to have a covenantal relationship with some other group of pagan non-believing nations because they were his chosen people. We talked about last week how they, he didn't even want them to have a king because he knew that that king would misuse and abuse them and then start taking the place of God in their lives. We talked about that with King Saul last week. But the kings are there, and these kings end up making these treaties with these pagan nations, and one of them is Syria. And because the Syrians were not real thrilled with how the Israelites were behaving, now instead of kind of being um, in peace with each other, the Syrians end up invading Israel, which is the northern kingdom. And Samaria was sort of like the epicenter or the capital of the northern kingdom. So what happened, we didn't get into this too much last week, but um, you have Saul, David, Solomon, and by the end of Solomon, which we think of as the capital, was in Judah. So in the northern part, which is Israel, Samaria was kind of the capital. Okay, so you have Samaria and Jerusalem as kind of these main cities. But Samaria was not just a city, it was an entire region because the northern kingdom of Israel was much bigger. It had almost all of the tribes in it. Judah was kind of on its own. So Samaria was a place that was not just the epicenter, but it was really a place of influence. Now we think in the New Testament, don't we, about Samaria, and we realize how much hatred there was between the Jews and the Samaritans. But back in the book of Kings, that had not yet happened, okay? So Samaria was a really important place. Well, what ends up happening is that um, Elisha lives in Samaria, okay? Naaman is from Syria. He's back home in Syria, and they have in their community, a lot of the younger um, children or teens, the youths who would have been taken back from the homeland because they were valuable to the Syrians as, as captives. Carrie talked a little bit about this on our Back to School Sunday when she talked about um, the uh, Hebrew children, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel that we talk about being taken during the Babylonian captivity, right? Why did they take back these Jews? Well, um, it, it really wasn't just because they didn't want to kill them off. They found them to be valuable to them for a whole variety of reasons, some of which are pretty dark, okay? So this slave girl is living in Naaman's household. She works for his wife, and she has no family now. They've either been killed off or she's been separated from them. She has nothing to, to base any love on these people for, okay? No reason, They've invaded her homeland. They've taken her captive. They've probably killed off her family, her friends. She's never going to see any of them again, and here she is. And Naaman comes down with leprosy. 
And as that account that Judy read for us so beautifully articulates, she had a choice to make. I don't know if you and I make the same choice that she made. I would like, to, maybe, I would hope we would be those kinds of people. But just think about it, okay? Let, let's run a little test here to see whether or not we would have had the same mindset that this slave girl had. You get out of church today, you're driving home or you're going into Adrian or Hillsdale or somewhere, you're out on the road, okay? Somebody comes flying past you 15 miles an hour over the speed limit. Zoom, off they go. Besides being aggravated and thinking it's dangerous, okay, you put it behind you, you keep driving on, okay? Five minutes later, you come down the road and that person is sitting If right now you're going like, yep, darn right, he's got pulled over, all right, you're not telling Naaman about the healer in Israel. I'm sorry, not doing it. That's human nature. But she does. She says, man, if he could go back to Israel, there's a man there that could heal him. Well, you heard this story. Naaman's like, sweet. So he gets all his stuff together, and he does exactly what the wise men are going to do centuries later when they think they're looking for somebody important. What do they do? Go to the palace. That's what he does. He goes to the king. The king's like, what in the world are you talking to me for? I don't know. I can't heal you. Are you trying to pick a fight with me? And Elisha sends word and says, send him to Samaria. Or send him to me. He probably was already in Samaria because that's where the king would have been. Send him to me. And so Naaman goes to, El- to Elisha, and Elisha, again, you know, Naaman went to the king because that's where important people go. Elijah won't even go to the door for him. He says, there's the Jordan, go wash. What? Go wash in the Jordan. <laughs> if I wanted to wash, I could have stayed home. We got better rivers in Syria. That place is a mess. And the Jordan, really, and if you look up pictures of it online, there are parts of it where... Yeah, unless you want a mud bath, it's probably not the place you're looking for, okay? But then his servant says, if Elisha had come out and told you to go do this great feat, because the pagan um, religions would have been very familiar with the idea of you got to do really impressive things in order for the gods to have favor on you, Right? And his servant's like, if he had come out and said that you had to, you know, say some really profound prayer or that you had to go do some really difficult task and then the gods would be pleased with you and would heal you, you would have done it in a heartbeat. He's telling you to go take a bath in a muddy river. How hard can it be? You've come all this way. And so he does. And he dips seven times and comes up clean. And God had changed the heart of that man, I believe, through the forgiveness of a servant girl, the recognition that it is not might and power and position that brings healing, but only the Lord God, right? Which, by the way, is the same thing that Joseph and Daniel basically told their kings when they were asked to like interpret dreams and things. They both were like, we're not doing it. God's the one that does it. And so his heart realizes that it is only in what God is able to do that matters. It's not who you are. 
and in the forgiveness of this slave girl. Why does that matter with what Luke writes about when Jesus goes to the synagogue? Why? Because centuries later, another really important political figure, Naaman's long gone, his story is long past, barely even remembered in Israelite history. But another political figure, in fact, a king of kings, a prince of heaven, is himself going to walk out into that same Jordan River, the same river that Naaman was dunked in. He's going to walk out into those same waters and go to his cousin and say, I want you to baptize me. Jesus is going to be laid under the same water that Naaman was laid under. And he's going to be brought out. Not to change him, but as a recognition and a symbol for us that God and his pleasure for us is somehow related to our submission to him. Naaman is not healed until he goes and dips seven times like the prophet told him to. And it was not until Jesus comes out of those same waters that the heavens are opened and that God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus gets out of those waters and begins his journey from that part of the Jordan back to his hometown where it is likely that this story took place that John tell, or that Luke tells about Jesus going into the synagogue. And it may not be exactly in this chronology, although if you read the gospel accounts, it's not hard to see that it could be, that on his way from where he was baptized in the Jordan to where he speaks in his hometown in the synagogue, he, sa- he says on the way from here to Galilee, which is in the north part of the northern kingdom of Israel, I need to go through Samaria. Now, between the time that Naaman was in Samaria and the time that Jesus says he's going to go through Samaria, some drastic things have changed. Samaria is no longer this well-thought-of place, as I mentioned a few minutes ago. Why is it not well-thought-of? Because when the Syrians and others had begun their relationship and then infiltration of the northern kingdom, some of the Israelite people intermarried with some of those pagan families, including some of the Syrians. And their offspring congregated and lived in the area or the region of Samaria. So the kingdoms fall apart. Of course, by the time Jesus shows up, there are no more kings. There's no northern kingdom or southern kingdom. It's just Israel. Jerusalem is kind of what people think of as being important. And all the purists think that Jerusalem is the city and all of what are considered sort of the intermarried, um, questionable folks that now live up in Samaria feel like they're not even welcome in Jerusalem. And Samaria has become sort of this like wicked stepchild view. Okay, like they're not, they're not loved. The same area where Elisha used to live. Okay, Jesus comes out of the Jordan, out of his baptism, heads back home. And on one of his journeys between the lower area near Jerusalem and the, the, the southern area near Jerusalem and the northern area, which is where he grew up. On one of those journeys, he says, I've, I've got to go through Samaria. 
just like Naaman had been told, you've got to go to Samaria. Jesus, the scriptures tell us that he had a need to go through Samaria. Now you could say, well, that means he had to go through Samaria to get where he was going. So Maybe. But the Jews had gotten really good at taking paths around Samaria to get where they were going. They would walk farther to not have to walk through Samaria. Okay? They would make more work for themselves so they didn't have to hang around the people they didn't like. We probably understand that more than we would like to admit this morning. But that's what they did. So when the scriptures say that he had to go through Samaria, I don't think what they mean is, well, he had to go through Samaria to get where he was going. No, they were used to going the long way. Why did he have to go through Samaria? Well, there was a little town in the region of Samaria called Sychar. And in the middle of the day, Jesus and his disciples on their journey stop outside the town of Sychar and this place that no respectable Jew would ever find themselves. Sychar is probably about five miles away, roughly, from where Naaman met Elisha. A divine appointment that when Naaman showed up in the capital and said, I'm looking for a king who can heal me. And Elisha sent word and said, no, you're not looking for that. You come to me. I'll, I'll tell you what you need to do. That divine appointment. Jesus, these centuries later, ends up about five to ten miles away from that place, sitting at a well in the middle of the day, and a woman shows up. Not only is she a Samaritan, which means she is rejected, but all the indications of Scripture tell us that even amongst her own people, she was probably rejected. She comes to the well in the middle of the day. And we're not going to tell that whole story, but you know how it goes. Jesus meets her there while the disciples are away, and he changes that woman's life. Where they were sitting at Sychar that day probably was only about 10 to 15 miles away from a tributary of the Jordan, which would have been probably the closest place for Naaman to get into the Jordan waters based on where Elisha lived. So Jesus is having this conversation, telling the woman at the well, if you knew who I was, you would ask me and I would give you living water. He is sitting 15 miles probably from where Naaman also had to get down in water that he didn't trust in order to receive healing that he didn't know was available. And Jesus is saying to the Samaritan woman, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for what I have and it would change your life. And he does change your life. He then, whether in this journey or one of the similar ones, ends up in the synagogue just a few days later, reading this text from the Old Testament prophet and telling the whole group of people something that really, really, really ticks them off. That Elijah was sent to a woman who was an idolater, probably, 
during the famine in the Old Testament. And Elisha was asked to heal the pagan army captain Naaman. And I cannot help but imagine whether the event had already taken place, which would have probably been in Jesus just with a few days before, or whether it was about to take place, that Jesus in his mind is thinking, and I'm going to go to Samaria, or I've been to Samaria, and I'm changing the lives of those people that you think are outcasts too. Why did they get so mad at him? Because they were okay with the idea of God coming to redeem his people. What they weren't okay with was the idea that that transformation was for everybody. It was for the idol-worshiping widow. It was for the pagan army captain, who by their accounts was just getting what he deserved. Leprosy is what he deserved. It was for the Samaritan woman at the well. They couldn't wrap their minds around that. That's what they had trouble with. They didn't have a problem with a very well-presented and well-spoken Jesus getting up in the synagogue to read the scriptures to them. That was beautiful. But when he says, you know who God really cares about? You know who he's really after? Are the people who realize that they don't have it all together. In fact, he's, he's, he's going after the outcasts and the people that are disliked and even hated. What does that mean? I highly doubt, friends, that you walk into church on Sunday morning with a list of people that you're pretty sure God doesn't like. You may or may not have a list in your mind of people you're pretty sure you don't like. But probably, if we put the question to you, you would never say, nope, God, those people don't deserve God's redemption. Okay. But I'm not talking about just redemption this morning. We can be okay with a lot of people saying, yep, yep, those people really deserve, I mean, they, got, they really need to know about God's salvation, and somebody really ought to tell them, and it'll change their life, and hopefully that'll all happen, and I will never have to interact with them. But we're talking about more than redemption this morning. We're talking about life transformation, of which redemption is a part. Transformation is for everyone. And that means it is for our friends and our enemies. It is for the people who agree with you and the people who disagree with you. It is for the people that you or endear yourself to, and it is for the people that you can't stand being around. And we must be very careful because, again, if we just took a poll of everybody in the room, we probably wouldn't say, oh, no, we, don't, you know, we, we hope those people go to hell. We wouldn't say that. But sometimes I wonder if in our hearts, how much do we act towards people that we sort of see as being other than us? How much do we act towards them as if they too are being welcomed into the life-transforming kingdom of God? There are lifestyles. There are behaviors. There are people groups. There are cultures that we have trouble with sometimes. And it's different for different people. I'm not saying it's a blanket. Like It's different for different people. But here's the message that Jesus was sharing on that day. 
different beliefs. Here's an idol-worshiping woman in the Old Testament. Abhorrent behaviors. Well, here's a Syrian captain that just took over an entire country and hauled children away from their homes and back to his homeland. Different cultures. Here's a Samaritan woman at a well that nobody likes. And his response is what he read from the Old Testament prophet. I have been called to preach the gospel to the down and out. To look at the captives, the people who probably deserve to be in the positions they're in, at least that's what we think, and to proclaim, proclaim release to them. The giving of sight to the blind, the people that were just marginalized because of deficits in their life. Do you hear what I'm saying? Look, guys, none of you is going to go out of church this week and start making a list of people that you hate. At least I hope not. We can talk about that if you are. It's a whole different issue. But can we just ask the Spirit of God this week to flood us with a renewed desire to see the other, the others, in the way that he sees them? Look, I'm not saying that lifestyle and behavior and beliefs and worship and all those things don't matter. They do matter. They're just not where God sets the bar. God sets the bar right down here. Do you realize how much you need me? That's the, that's the bar for getting into the kingdom. Now, when we're in the kingdom, is there growth? Is there change? Is there continued transformation? Absolutely. But the, problems the, the problem the Jews had with Jesus is that they liked the bar to be up here. We've been talking about this in our Galatians study a little bit. They liked the bar to be up here. You get all of your stuff figured out, get yourself sorted out, then maybe God will love you. Or then maybe God will approve of you. And Jesus just takes that bar and sets it right down here. And he says, the idol worshiper, the pagan, the outcast, the broken, I'm here for all of it. I don't know who you're going to run into this week, but I'm going to venture to say you're going to run into some people that at the very least, internally, you kind of shrink back from a little bit. And maybe they deserve it. I don't know. But maybe they don't. Maybe, maybe you deserve it. Maybe I deserve it right? You're going to run into some people this week that you're, you're inclined internally at least to shrink back from. Can I encourage you to step into those moments? Jesus almost gets himself killed this day because they could not wrap their mind around that being why God would send Christ to earth. But it happened for Naaman it happened for the Samaritan woman, and it will happen for people that you're going to encounter this week as well. Whether you're an elementary school kid, a high schooler, a young adult, you're a middle-aged person, a senior adult, you're going to find yourself in spaces this week where it's easier to shrink away from people than to love them the way Jesus would. Can we just agree that we want to imitate Jesus in those situations? Right? I get it. Sometimes you have to draw lines and boundaries and be careful. And you gotta, you, There's a lot of things that go into uncertain relationships and situations. But can we at least agree that we want to have the heart of Christ in those moments? And we want to love the unlovable and care about the ones that nobody else is caring about.
Because God did. He did it for Naaman, and he did it for the Samaritan woman, and he did it for countless others listed in Scripture and since then. And he's going to do it through us. Let's stand together as we close with prayer this morning. Just for a second, I'm going to ask you to reflect before I pray. We're not going to linger on this long, but just for a second, we're going to reflect. You know your life better than I do, and you know the people in your life, and you know things that you may or may not uh, struggle with, and situations that you may or may not struggle with. Can you just take a second right now before I pray for us and we dismiss? Can you just take a second right now to ask the Lord to give you his mindset this week in the people that you encounter? Maybe you do know some people in your life that you're just much more inclined to think, you know what, they're going to get what they deserve. Maybe surrender that to the Lord right now. And then we'll pray. Lord, you know our hearts. And generally, Lord, I believe we want to do what your will is, but we know that there's that part of us sometimes that stands in the way. Someone's done us wrong. Someone has not been the kind of person that we think that they should be. Or maybe it's obvious. Maybe they're a terrible person. And God, sometimes we just, um, we just figure, well, they, just, they get what they deserve. Uh, help us to remember that that's not how you've seen us. And Lord, help us to remember the examples from Scripture of where you have reached out to the unlovable and the broken. We are going away from this place today. We need to be filled with your grace and peace. We cannot do this on our own. So help us, Lord, we pray. Guide us by the power of your Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. This message is a ministry of Hudson Wesleyan Church, where our mission is to see lives transformed for the glory of God. For more information, you may contact the church at 517-448-6411 or at hudsonwesleyan.org. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you.